messages from different ones in Kenya for quite some time, along with Ghana and a few other places in Central and Eastern Africa. And there is a great deal of fraud that goes on. Uh, people do get on all churches' websites, uh, no matter what kind of church it might be. And they read enough on websites to be able to recite two or three things that they say they agree with, and then they begin to touch them up for money and, uh, and other things. So, I don't want to close my heart and mind to needs, and yet on the other hand, <clears throat> if we were to be involved with people, I wanted to be sure that they did have a background in the truth and understanding of God's way. So when this group <clears throat> from Kenya contacted me, I was a bit skeptical at first with, because of past experiences. So I emailed back and forth a few times and found that indeed they had been involved with the church, uh, many of them back in, in Worldwide and later through Global or Living and uh, some of them in through Church of God and Truth and even a Bill Goff in uh, New Jersey. And then they had contacted us. So they did have a track record going back that is very similar to the experience of people in the United States with the church, going from group to group looking for some answers and uh, generally not being able to find what they're looking for and moving on. So they've had that same experience. <clears throat> so they invited me to come over. Uh, in fact, we're very adamant about it and wanted uh, help and assistance from us, spiritually speaking. Uh, so I decided to go. And I am thankful that I did. Uh, I think on a spiritual level, it was a very, very rewarding trip. On the other hand, physically, it was a very demanding and difficult trip. Now, I think I am more adventuresome by nature uh, than most people and have tried a lot of things that other people have not done or gone to. But I'll tell you what, Kenya was a challenge. <laughs> it was almost more than I could take after two weeks. Uh, it is definitely third world. I don't know whether they have a category known as fourth world or not, but... Uh, it's somewhere in there. And I understand and can sympathize with the millions of people there who are destitute, they're in poverty, many of them barely have enough to eat, and many, many times they do not have enough to eat. And other countries through Central Africa are the same way. We have read stories in Rwanda and other places of millions starving to death, and uh, indeed, those things have been true. We have to understand what people do just to survive there. Uh, they walk mostly everywhere they go. Uh, I, I saw school kids walking seven, eight, nine miles to school one way. Uh, and then in the afternoon when school is over, they walk the same distance home. Uh, they have had some modernity come to the nation. Used to, the women carried their water from the creek or a spring or a muddy pond, usually. Uh, 
to their house in clay pots through the centuries, but they have now achieved a great degree of modern civilization, and now they use five-gallon plastic buckets to carry their water. <laughs> uh, a vast improvement. <clears throat> They're lighter and more durable. But nonetheless, uh, there's no electricity uh, through most of the country, and those parts that do have electricity, sometimes it's only two or three days a week in a town itself that there is some electricity. So they have no refrigeration, uh, no electrical appliances, and no electrical lights other than maybe one in a house driven off a battery. And not headlamps or, or flashlights for the most part. They can't afford them. So they wander around in the dark at night and often are walking home at night. Uh, most of rural Kenya is, uh, I guess you'd have to call them farmers. They may have two or three or four acres total. <clears throat> that is the area that they have to grow their food on, uh, whether it be bananas and mangoes and cabbages and potatoes and that type of thing. And most of those, it seemed, have three to six head of cattle. And they use the cattle to plow their fields. And they don't generally eat them, the ones that are, should, could be butchered, because they have no way of preserving the meat, freezing it or whatever, to keep it over a period of time. So they have to go to town, to a market, and sell the cow, and then they buy their meat, how much they might need for that day or two days maximum, so that it doesn't spoil in the heat. And every town, including the big cities, is teeming with masses of people in the streets who are coming from the countryside around to the market. They may walk eight, nine, ten miles just to go to a store, uh, if you can call it a store, uh, things laid out along the road and some ramshackle old buildings that have some businesses. So they carry whatever they might have to sell, whether it be cabbages or potatoes or bananas, on their head, <clears throat> eight or nine or ten miles to market. They buy what they might need for the next day or two and carry it home on their head. And they have to do this every two or three days in order to have food at home. We do not understand being deprived yet in this country. And on top of that, uh, there are many diseases. Most Kenyans and most people around equatorial Africa, for that matter, and other countries, have malaria. And many have had it since childhood. Uh, malaria kills millions of people every year around the world, and it kills many people right there in Kenya. Uh, I was, that was one of my biggest distresses, was trying to avoid mosquito bites, uh, although someone told me here before I left that any mosquito bit me would die immediately. Uh, so, uh, at any rate, I was afraid they might not, and I might. So I was trying to be very careful, and I think that is one of the greatest emotional and mental hazards to traveling in that type of country, is the concerns about a, a little bug 
that has the capacity to maim, to harm, to make ill, and to kill. So many of the people suffer with malaria, and it is something that comes on you. You have a bout with it, <clears throat> come down with fever, headaches, chills, uh, sweats, debility and weakness, and that lasts a matter of time, and then you recover sufficiently to go about life, and then it comes again. So it, it's like having the flu every so often, and worse. There are many widows and orphans due to malaria and AIDS and tuberculosis. You know, we anoint people over here with different maladies, and yes, they can be serious and they can be harmful and hurtful and debilitating, but I found myself anointing people with AIDS, with tuberculosis, with malaria. One little girl in one of the groups we met with was oh, about that tall, and she had... Uh, mucus coming out of her eyes and her nose and drooling at the mouth. And her dad told me that she had uh, a mental illness. And I questioned what that was. I, I didn't say anything. But I asked uh, the elder Braddocks later uh, what was the nature of it. And he said malaria brought that on her. Her mind doesn't work well and, and uh, it just messed her whole system up. So there is a great deal of distress and frustration <clears throat> in barely living from cabbage to cabbage. Uh, and a whole nation of millions of people are that way. Now before I left here, uh, I think I told you that I had wrestled with the thought of what would be the best message for those people. And I felt before I left here, and I had it certainly... Uh, driven in very deeply upon arriving there that a message of hope is what they really needed. And they have been involved with other churches of the Church of God who have taught them about the Sabbath and about uh, the Holy Days and the various uh, basic doctrines of the Church. But I felt that we had something unique that needed to be passed along uh, to give them hope for the future. I was told before I went there, there were about 103 people uh, who were members of the church. As it turned out, uh, I probably spoke to upwards of 300, certainly 250 and maybe 300 people in nine or ten different locations. And wow, we almost destroyed a rental car in that two weeks. Uh, I was parked at one point and I opened the driver's door. A guy on a bicycle ran into it. So it was kind of sprung. And then the hood got where it, I mean the, the uh, boot as they call it, the, the trunk got where it would not stay shut. And the struts in the front, the suspension were so loose, they wiggled and wobbled and thumped and banged and uh, got where it didn't want to start right. Of course, it was an older car to start with, but uh, we took that car places most Americans would not dare take their four-wheel drive SUVs. And I mean that, over rocks that big around, piles of them that you had to weave your way through, and over roads that you had to stop and study a while to be sure that you could find a way across it. Uh, challenges that most 
four-wheel drive clubs do not take on. And we got that car across and back. It never ceased to amaze me when we would drive out 20, 30 miles by dirt road, you would call it, I guess. Sometimes with trees growing right up and brushing both sides of the car, and then that would turn into a cow trail, and then it would disappear before you got to where we were headed. I do have pictures of all this, and I wish I had the technology here today to show you. Um, perhaps we'll have a chance to do that at some time. But it kept striking me over and over. How did the truth of God get out into the far-flung outreaches of the earth, such as we were in. And even <clears throat> the elders there kept remarking on that. You won't believe where the truth of God has reached. And I could barely believe it. But when I got there, I found they had the truth. So it was a very difficult situation uh, physically and mentally and emotionally to deal with. Uh, and to begin to eat their foods that they ate. They make kind of a goopy ball of what they call bread out of ground-up maize and very little else. And uh, the meat that they do serve, if visitors come and they can provide some meat, is so tough that it is almost impossible to chew. And about a quarter of it ends up in your teeth to be enjoyed later. And I think the reason for that is that since there is no refrigeration, even if an animal is slaughtered and sold in town, they cut chunks off and hang it up for people to, to buy and for the flies to enjoy. And uh, it doesn't age, so they take it home and fry it up, and it turns pretty much like leather. Uh, so they serve it, and they do so willingly and and uh, with an attitude of wanting to give and share and serve. Wonderful attitudes in the people. And yet, <clears throat> for an American, uh, it was difficult to enjoy some of the things they ate. And they even told me, you won't want to eat this a few times. So I would kind of try it just to see what it is that I didn't want, and I didn't. But, uh, in each case, we were able to speak for two to three hours, giving them essentially the message we have of the end time. I did not hold back, told them the whole thing. I went through Revelation 2 and 3 and showed what has happened to the church and why, Essentially, the message of the minor prophets and the other prophets on top of it. And then went to Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4 to show that God would again appoint leadership in the church, this time the two witnesses, who would have a remnant of people join with them and rebuild the church, rebuild the temple, and rebuild Jerusalem in its proper place. So we went through that. We went quickly through Haggai to show how the people will gather with the leadership God will appoint and that God will bless uh, the building of His temple and that it will be greater than that in the past. Uh, 
We went through some scriptures on the gathering showing America would have a financial collapse there in Zephaniah 1 and how people should begin to gather, uh, including Micah 4 and Isaiah 48 and uh, some scriptures in Ezekiel showing how God will begin to regather His people here at the end time. Then, of course, we had to understand where. And I had to explain to them, uh, going to Deuteronomy 8, of course, what the promised land would be like. And we went through all those scriptures and compared it to the Middle East, and they could see that that in no way could be the promised land. So I'd ask them then, where is the promised land? And not too many said anything, but a few in each, uh, one or two maybe in a per group would say, after I described it, maybe America. And then when you describe America based on Deuteronomy 8, 7, and 8, it fits perfectly. One did suggest Africa, which was very easy to show that that was not the case. But we went through and talked about Zion and showed some scriptures about Zion and what the true Zion will look like with mountains and heights and towers and uh, uh, what the Zion over there is like. <laughs> and There's nothing there. Uh, the story that you are all quite familiar with. Uh, one scripture struck me pretty heavily, I think. I, I had not thought of it in quite this way. Uh, but it hit me like a thunderbolt in the middle of it all, and that's in Ezekiel 31. This is talking about, essentially, uh, that isn't the chapter I wanted. Ezekiel 37, I guess it is. Now, wait a minute. How did I lose that chapter? Oh, Jeremiah 31. What am I saying? I could remember the scriptures over there. <clears throat> anyway, this chapter has a great deal to do with Ephraim, and I felt it important to explain to them where Ephraim was uh, so that they would understand from whence in the latter days uh, the truth would come, and here in uh, chapter 30, the last verse, it says, In the latter days you shall understand it. And then it begins to talk about finding grace in the wilderness in verse 2 of, of Jeremiah 31. Uh, of course, we had gone to Micah 4, showing where to go gather in the wilderness. But down in verse 6 and 7, I think this helped them understand a great deal where Ephraim is today. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion unto the Eternal our God. Now many in the church were taught, or the whole church really was taught, that uh, Ephraim was in Great Britain and America was Manasseh. But this verse tells us a great deal. That in the end days, become, there will come a day when the watchmen of God will stand on the mountains of Ephraim. Uh, 
Great Britain, A, does not have any mountains. They have some mountains, can you call them mountains? Up in the north of Scotland, they call the Scottish Highlands. They don't even call them mountains, just highlands. And they go up to the highest ones, a little over 4,000 feet, is the highest point in Great Britain. And they certainly do not have any mountains that you could say, count the towers of the mountains and go to the heights of Zion. They don't have a place called Zion. And the watchman would cry from Ephraim. Now, where did the message in the end time originate? Southwestern United States. So, it is the mountains of Ephraim, God says, where the cry will be made. So, if it came from here, it must be here. Now, Herbert Armstrong was the first end-time watchman. And in one sense, uh, he, he came from southwestern U.S., and God says in Ezekiel 17 that he would estab- be established in a city of merchandise or, or merchants, a busy place, a metropolis, and Pasadena and Los Angeles was that place. So it came from the southwestern United States. This prophecy here, I think, is even a little more specific. I believe we have established where the promised land is, the original smaller one before God expanded it, and that these mountains up through Utah are originally the mountains of Ephraim. And they'll stand there and say to people, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal our God. And it struck me like a thunderbolt as I read this to those people, that I had just come from Ephraim and told them, you need to go to Zion. It was kind of a scary thing and sent a chill up and down my spine. I hadn't intended to say that uh, in that way. But as I read it, it just came over me. This is exactly what we're doing as one of the watchman groups of the end time is telling these people they need to go to Zion. In verse 7, uh, punctuated it somewhat for them. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. So I asked them, which is the chief nation today? It says, remember, it says latter days up there at the end of chapter 30. And they could all only conclude that the USA was the chiefest of nations on the earth today. So they could see. Uh, verse 12 I also covered. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of the Eternal for all of His blessings, as it continues to say there. There is no height of Zion in the Middle East. It is only curb high and then goes down as part of the valley. It certainly has no towers and no mountains, and is not like the Zion here that is the joy of the land. There are a couple of verses I quoted to them I didn't go to, but I looked them up this morning. I think I'll go to them here for us. Uh, Chapter 26 of Genesis and verse 4. Speaking to Abraham, God says, And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give to your seed 
All these countries, and in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now there is one of the proofs of where the seed of Abraham would be. Now recall Genesis 49, where he describes Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and says that they will grow over the wall like a spreading vine, so blessed. Many, many blessings are pronounced on Joseph there. And remember also that uh, uh, Isaac had pronounced on Ephraim a double blessing instead of Manasseh, that Ephraim would have the greater blessings ultimately than Manasseh. And what nation has everything that it needs on the face of the earth besides America? And that was, it was easy to show them then that Israel in the Middle East has not been blessed of all nations. Not one person that I know of has ever been converted and baptized there in the end time. They have not been a financial or physical blessing to the world. In fact, they import a majority of what they use, and they could not exist without foreign aid from the United States. Africa is the same way for those few who might have thought, well, Africa could be the promised land. No, Africa cannot even support its own population, and millions have starved there over the last 20, 30 years alone. They do have many natural resources, but they certainly do not have everything they need, and if it had not been for Israel, such as France and Britain and Portugal and Germany even, and other nations from Europe that supported Africa and built what Africa has, they would not have anything even yet today. We need to understand that the people of Ham were leaders in the world. The Olmec culture in South America clearly is of Ham. Black people existed there, uh, even in Asia. North America, there is great evidence of black people having been here. The brown race that inhabited when we came back has pointed out one of the great proofs that black people had been in North America. Because they could clearly see when I explained, you had Shem, Ham, and Japheth, black, white, and yellow, and the only way you can get brown is to mix those. And the Bible says that there was a great number of black people when Abraham got to the promised land. <coughs> they intermarried a great deal. And when Israel was taken captivity by ship, as God said they would the second time uh, go, uh, most of the Africans, we call them Africans, or black people who were here, also were either driven out or left. But they built great civilizations, apparently in South America. Great cities lie underneath the jungles they're just now discovering. But when they went back to Africa, they became third world and have been that ever since. Now, did not God tell uh, them when Pharaoh was destroyed and the Egyptian or Mitzrium empire was destroyed that they would never again reach prominence, that they would become a third-rate nation or people? So the natural ability and strength of Ham was to be world rulers, like Nimrod and city builders, way back. 
But later they were punished by God for some of the things they had done, and God said they would not again reach prominence, and they have not. But the nations of Israel have. So that was all explained. <clears throat> Let's see one more in Genesis 28, uh, verse 14. Well, I'll start in 13. And behold, the Eternal stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon you lie, to you will I give it, and to your seed. So wherever Jacob was lying then was land that would be given to his seed in the end time. They are not in the Middle East. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So where Jacob was laying, in all four compass directions, Israel would take the land, and it would be part of the promised land. Now, if he were lying in the southwestern United States, to the east, to the north, to the west, and even to the south, great blessing has come, and the seed of Jacob inhabit that land today. But when you go north, south, east, and west of Israel in the Middle East, you find desert and Arabs, or you get plunked into the Mediterranean. And that cannot fit, does not fit. But the Middle East, Israel, has not blessed the whole world. America, I explained, has wheat, corn, grain fields stretching in the middle of the country for thousands of kilometers, north, south, east, and west. We have fed the world. Many, many nations have been fed, and we have water almost everywhere. Springs, rivers, lakes, and so on. So they could see very clearly that this is the original promised land. And then I told them their part. I went to Isaiah 44 and 45 to show that in the end time, God is going to provide the means wherewith people will come and be blessed with all they need to build a temple, and that the hidden treasures will show up. Haggai indeed says in 2 verse 8, the gold is mine and the silver is mine, and the glory of the latter temple will be far greater than that of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. So God is going to provide the means to do all the building, and I showed them that verse I read to you in Isaiah 45 before I left about how the Mitzriamites, uh, the Sabaeans, and the Ethiopians, tribes of Ham, would come over to us and they would bind themselves to this project and say, surely God is with you. And then I said, do you want to come to America, to Zion? And they all said yes. Now, in my mind, there was a question. A lot of people want to come to America. It's been the place 
of the American dream. But I had explained to them in the beginning that America is about to be destroyed. I said America will be destroyed, and the only place you can come where you will be protected is Zion and Jerusalem, where God will protect His people to build His church and His temple. Do you still want to come to America? And they said, yes. They can see, brethren, this story. I quizzed the elders later after going from one group to another group to another group. And these elders, by the way, Evan uh, O'Ching and his son Braddocks, heard this nine or ten times. So, and they had to translate it too. They didn't sleep through it into the language of the country, Lou. So they heard it all many times. And I asked them, I said, are these people just smiling and nodding and agreeing for the sake of agreeing? Or do they get it? And he says, no, they really get it. They understand the message. They see everything you've said. And indeed, they seem to. So, it was very inspiring to me to go to the ends of the earth, if you will, out cow trails, 20, 30 miles over rocks and mud and rough road, and find people who are keeping God's Sabbath and His feast, and who took this message of hope straight from the Bible, followed it in their Bibles, heard it translated in their own language, and absolutely agreed with it. To me, that was phenomenal. No one can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. And these people's minds would not have been opened unless God were opening their minds to this message from His Word. And I even remarked, I think if I gave this same message to 300 Americans... Even 300 church members who are not at all familiar with what we believe, if one had believed it, I would be surprised. That's how sad it is that we are so prejudiced, we are so set on what we have believed to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth since Herbert Armstrong, that the minds of most Americans, church members, are not open enough to see very clearly what the Bible is saying about the near future. But he opened these people's minds just like that. And I'm wondering if they will not be among the first to come, and they may very well be some of the tribes of Ham that God is speaking of there in Isaiah 45. I couldn't help but read that to them. It was interesting to see also a lady who had been, she said, a member of the church since 1955. I barely predated her by two years as a child. I don't know how old she was. It was it's hard to tell looking at her, but she had to be up there pretty good in order to have been connected with the church since 1955. How long she has been faithful to the truth of God without much of it around her. And she was way out in the boonies. I also on the trip met Moses and Elijah. 
Moses is 80 years old. Moses was 80 when he brought Israel out of Mitzrayim. Maybe Moses will be one of the first ones to say, I'm coming when the time arrives. I did read to them Isaiah 55 and how God would say, have milk and honey, or, or was it milk and honey or whatever it is without money and all the things that you will need. And they would come to do the work, but God would provide everything they needed. And they were for that. But uh, interesting to meet Moses and Elijah both. They are types of the end time uh, two witnesses as well. I don't think they're the ones to do it, but uh, interesting to meet people of that name. I also met a fellow by the name of Ezekiel in one group, and that turned out to be quite interesting. Uh, someone told me before the meeting started that Ezekiel and his wife had just had a son born and that they had named him Dariel. Uh, people have trouble with my name. Uh, Dariel to the Kenyans and the Spanish can't deal with it at all. But it's interesting. Of course, I'd laugh. Yeah, yeah, right, sure. Then Ezekiel comes out and... Uh, explain that he and his wife had heard that I was coming. They didn't know me from Adam and had named their child after me. And I said, well, he spoke some English. And I said, I hope you haven't cursed that poor child. <laughs> but, uh, but then I changed that and I said, uh, I felt very, very humbled and honored that they would name their child after me. They didn't even know me, but they had heard I was coming to bring them a message. So they named it that. So I got the whole little Daryl. And oh, he was, he was cute. He didn't look much like me. <clears throat> but uh, that, that was quite an emotional moment for me that someone that didn't know me in the wild would give it my name. Uh, wow. We met approximately 300 people, I would say. Uh, of course, that was counting children, and, and Braddock's may not have told me before when he said 103 members. He may have just been counting baptized people, but uh, that many. But they also had, for the thesis last year, approximately 300 people. And they met, uh, I wish I had the pictures here, but they met in a mud house. They do have a tin roof. I think Bill Goff in New Jersey may have been helpful in, in uh, giving them the metal. But they put up sticks and then they stuffed mud between the sticks to make a wall. And that building is approximately 20 by 40. Uh, that is the same size tent that we had for the feast this year. It was 20 by 40. And with tables and, and American comfort, uh, we were a little tight in there with between 60 and 70 people. They had the same size building and had 300 people in it, same size as our tent, if you will. They must have been very cozy, uh, but that's where they met, rain and all. Now, I was struck very much that Evan and Braddocks and the people there, another elder named Bethlehem, an older man, in seeing all the orphans in Kenya, around 
where they live, and they're way out in the boonies as well, nine miles from the nearest town, which isn't much of a town. Uh, there were many orphans there between age five and ten, whose parents died with various illnesses. And these children were left essentially in the care of aunts and uncles or grandparents who do not, do not want them and cannot afford to feed them. And Evan and Braddocks have started what they are trying to cause to be an orphanage. And they have, at this moment, 48 little children with a staff that is volunteer, totally volunteer, not church members, but people from around the area, I think six or seven teachers that come and teach school to those children five days a week. They have a full-time school going for those five to ten-year-old kids. The kids get essentially one meal a day from their uh, grandparents. And Evan and his crew are trying to take care of those children. Uh, they want to have a full... Uh, orphanage because the grandparents and aunts and uncles would gladly turn the children over to them and let them take care of them totally day and night. But so far they do not have the money to feed them a breakfast or a lunch and therefore they can't keep them there. They have constructed behind the hall that I described the 2540 building, another building with mud walls that's divided into several rooms that they use for classrooms. I had a meeting one day with all the orphans and the staff and tried best I could to relate to five to ten-year-olds the rules, the laws of God, and why they're good, and to the staff who does not keep the Sabbath, why the whole world hates the Sabbath. You know why... The world hates the Sabbath more than any other command, do you not? Why is it different than Wednesday or Friday or Sunday? Why would the whole world hate the Sabbath? Because it is the seventh day, and it represents the time when Christ will rule on the earth and Satan will be bound. And Satan hates the seventh day above everything else because it represents a time when he will not be able to influence mankind. So the Sabbath is a key doctrine to Satan. And the deception about the promised land and the true Jerusalem is also one of his major deceptions because he does not want the world to know whence Christ will rule and where Israel truly is. So he has hidden that. And he used the Catholic Church in 325 A.D. to change the Sabbath for all the so-called Christian world to Sunday. And he used Constantine's mother to go to the Middle East and to rename locations that she found there after Bible names at the same time, they had book burnings and library burnings and tried to get rid of all books that showed any true history of mankind. And therefore, foist off on the world a false and fake promised land and Jerusalem 
and Sabbath, all at about the same period of time, a couple of hundred years after the early New Testament church was established and then, of course, essentially ended. But I explained that to them, and uh, the staff was still friendly thereafter, so I, I don't know how much it penetrated. Now, with what time I have remaining, uh, I want to go to some scriptures uh, that I think can have some impact on us here. They certainly caught my attention, and uh, I put a few of them together this morning. One of them hit me like a thunderbolt, and we'll get to that toward the end. But I want to rehearse quickly here a few uh, because I saw so many widows and orphans. And they have no social safety net for widows and orphans uh, in Kenya and other third world countries. Here you may have some government benefit programs, some food stamps, some social security. They have none of that. And since most of them are farmers or grow gardens and have a cow or two or six, and that's their living. They live in mud huts. Uh, some of them even have metal roofs, but still we met in several thatched roof huts with dirt floors, no kitchens. Uh, they cook on fire from wood they carry from wherever they can get it on their heads, and that's how they cook. They must boil all their water, or they'll have dysentery and all kinds of diseases that come from the water. Most of it very muddy, with residue in the bottom of the pot after it is boiled. So, life is very difficult, and once a woman is widowed and her children orphaned, she has no one to do the farming, she has no one to take care of the land and the place, and therefore is in jeopardy of starving to death. Now, our people are not sitting doing nothing about this, and I want you to understand that. The one group up in the mountains is a very poor area, and yet they have been working on a system down through a, a, a canyon in the mountains where they have established uh, four ponds uh, that they are growing fish in, and they intend to sell the fish to help support the widows and the orphans if their project works. They've not got them to the point of sale yet. They're also around the ponds where there is water in that little canyon, <coughs> uh, growing cabbages and so on to sell to try to help support the widows and the orphans. One little group of no more than 30 had six widows and quite a few orphans in that one little group. And then Evan and Braddocks are also uh, doing that effort to take care of the widows around their headquarters area, along with children that they are uh, providing a school for. And not only are they teaching them reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, Evan and uh, some of the other church peoples, have classes every day in God's truth to teach these five to ten-year-olds the church the truth of God as they grow up. So school is about reading, writing, and arithmetic, but it's also about teaching them the ways of God. So they're not lazy. They're impoverished. They have terrible government. 
Uh, they barely survive, and yet they are reaching out to others to try to help. It has been commented of them, and they were not real happy with it, that uh, they weren't worth visiting. A minister in the Church of God told them that, and that he would see them in the millennium. Uh, that they're lazy and don't work, and therefore don't deserve to eat. Harsh words, very harsh words. That's the leader of one of the groups of the Church of God. I guess. Exodus 22, verse 22. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. God starts out early in His instruction of truth and in His way that those who are underprivileged, who have trouble, widows, orphans, strangers in the gate, and so on, are not to be abused in any way and that they are to be taken care of. Now, His whole financial system involves that. I'm not going to go to Deuteronomy 14, 16, and 24, and 26 to review uh, his financial system of first, second, and third tithe. We've been there in detail uh, fairly recently. And it is very clear by use that those are there. There is no denying that. And the reason God set it up that way was to be sure that the widow, the orphan, the stranger would be able to go to the feasts, and through second tithe, and through third tithe, so the widow, the orphan, the stranger would be taken care of. So God is so concerned that He set up His whole financial system for Israel to be sure that those who were in need were taken care of. Now that is the mind of God. That's how His mind works. He is filled with love, and especially for the underprivileged. And he tells us to be concerned in the same way and has even directed us in our financial ways in how to go about that. And we are to have the mind of God, the mind of Christ. We are to learn to think like Him. So I think it's important, and it struck me very, very hard when I saw widows and orphans who are barely surviving and saw them with diseases and debilities. Uh, it was a very, very emotional situation for me. Now, I've wondered about some of these scriptures and how they really apply, and as we get on down into this, you'll see what I mean to us today in America, where we have a system in the church and a system in the nation that by and large takes care of people who are in need. But what about people in other countries who have no means of support, and how are they taken care of? And many of them die. Psalm 146, verse 9. Until you go someplace like that, it's hard to grasp some of these scriptures, but they brought it home to me. 
I, I, wish, I would love to show you pictures. That's worth more than a thousand words by far. Uh, and I hope you get to see those at some time. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Eternal preserves the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Eternal shall reign forever. Even your God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise you, the Eternal. Uh, he is tying together here the widow, the orphan, whether they be physical widows and orphans or perhaps spiritual widows and orphans, with God preserving them from Zion, from Jerusalem, from the Holy Land, henceforth even forever. And we'll see that these prophecies get very pointed a little later on. Let's go to Jeremiah 7, verse 3. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Speaking of the promised land and the gate of the Lord's temple, or God's house there in verse 2. Trust you not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. Now notice that he says, it isn't good enough just to say, we're in the church. Hey, we're in the church. Don't you know we're the church? That isn't enough, God says. And this is an end-time prophecy of the church today. And did he not say he spewed up us out of his mouth because of our inattention and our lukewarmness and lack of devotion to his ways? And we thought just because we were in the church, everything was okay. And God says, no, I want you to repent. I want you to change. There are things that need fixing. And one of the main things he brings out here in verse 6 is, If you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Now there are several instructions here, but the one of the moment is that we are to be very, very careful with the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and that our staying in and ruling from the promised land is based very much on that one premise. That makes it very, very important. Go to James 1. <clears throat> we have read this many times. I don't know that it meant a whole lot to us. It means more to me now than it did three weeks ago. James 1, verse 27. <clears throat> Pure religion and undefiled before God, and the Father is this. So God is going to give here a definition of pure, undefiled religion. The kind of religion that He pays attention to, okay? To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep Himself unspotted from the world. So He divides it into two parts. To visit, and to visit means to come to and take care of. When God says He will visit us, 
Sometimes he's speaking of visiting cursings. Sometimes he is visiting blessings. But in Bible parlance, to visit means to provide something, good or bad. In this case, something good. In other words, they're afflicted and they have need. So, taking care of those who are unfortunate and in need is the first part of true and pure religion. The second part is not to get spotted by the sins of the world. So, it's a two-part definition that James gives of true, pure, sincere, uncorrupt religion. Now, notice in James 2, He carries the thought forward somewhat here. Uh, Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, Notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? If someone is in need and you say, God's blessing be upon you, be you warmed and filled, and they go away hungry, naked, cold, what good did that do? Yes, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what I wanted. Uh, Verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. So you can say you have faith in God, but if you don't have the good works toward other people in need, then he says that faith does you no good. It's empty faith. It's dead faith. It's faith that you claim to have, but it means nothing to God unless you take care of those who are in need. Zechariah 7. If I think of it, I'll go back to a thought I I dropped earlier. I wanted to to read one more verse on. But Zechariah 7, verse 8. Here's a definite end-time prophecy of the time of the two witnesses and the gathering of the remnant of the church. Zechariah 7, verse 8. And the word of the Eternal came to Zechariah, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your hearts. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. At the beginning of Zechariah, he says, don't be like your fathers and ignore the things that you will be taught from Zechariah here in the end time. And yet this is an end time prophecy. It says that people will be willing to hear a message, but they will make their hearts like stone. And they will not heed. Now that's scary business when God <clears throat> says it will be that way. And we cannot let ourselves shut our hearts to those in need as all these verses have been showing. Matthew 25, Christ's very own words, not just inspired through someone else, 
But in his own words, he puts it in verse 31 of Matthew 25 like this. Uh, well, verse 34, I'll start. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. We all know this section, don't we? We've heard it many times. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous say, Lord, when saw we you hungry and fed you or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you as a stranger or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall answer and said to them, Truly I say to you, <coughs> excuse me, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now that's about as strong as you can get, is it not? Consigning people to the lake of fire because they do not take care of those who are poor and needy and naked and in need. Now, does that begin to make sense why he says pure religion and undefiled is to take care of the widow and the orphan? And he even equates it here with eternal life or eternal death. And that's the example he uses. He started this whole thing back in Genesis and Exodus and repeated it throughout the Bible. And here Christ sums up in some respects his whole ministry by making this pronouncement. <clears throat> because it was soon after that that he died. I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you in, under these conditions? And he shall answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And here he equates righteousness and eternity with taking care of those in need. How clear can it get? Now, I want to go back <clears throat> to Isaiah and just a couple more scriptures here. But before I go, I, I left one thing kind of hanging earlier I, I missed. So while you're back here, before we leave the New Testament, go to uh, Galatians 3. This is kind of a flashback, but uh, it is another proof of where Ephraim is and where the truth is today. Genesis 3, <laughs> Galatians 3, verse 8. In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before, before the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. We read that in Genesis, uh, and here it is repeated. <clears throat> So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, where did God begin to demonstrate the faith of God here in the end time? It was in this country. So he says the spiritual blessings that come on the world are going to emanate from 
the children of Abraham. Didn't come from Asia, didn't come from Africa, didn't come even from Europe, didn't come from South America, came from the United States. Read on down uh, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So Christ came from Abraham, and Christ established his word again in the end time through Abraham's seed, and he did it here. So there are several New Testament accounts that corroborate the story from the Old Testament. But moving on from that, let's go on back to Isaiah and the thread that we were discussing. Because Isaiah is so much an end-time prophecy, and God gives several uh, specific instances of things He is displeased with in Isaiah 1 through 3. Uh, here in Isaiah 1, verse 16, He's already discussed the feasts and how he's unhappy with those. He says, Wash you, make you clean, verse 16. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek true judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Judge the fatherless means to make a judgment and take care of. Just as you do for the widow. So, not taking care of those in need is part of the end-time negative issue that God has with the church of God. Now, let's go on to Isaiah 58, because it ties in directly with this and shows what God does expect. And not only that, but it does it in a very prophetic context. Remember the one we read in... Uh, Psalms, where it shows taking care of the needy and destitute, and how he ties that with being in Zion and ruling forevermore. We'll see more of that right here in Isaiah 58, and it's the last scripture I want to go to. <clears throat> we have read this on the Day of Atonement many times through the years. I addressed it when I went through Isaiah, but I was explaining to the people in Kenya uh, Isaiah 61, Jeremiah 9, and a various few scriptures showing how Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations and no inhabitants there and so on and so forth. And uh, I went to Isaiah 58 as well, because it does say down in verse 12 that a certain people will build up the old waste places and the foundations of many generations. So I wanted to read that to them, but I wanted them to see the context a little bit. So I reviewed for them, without going through all the verses, that God was speaking here of the, the right kind of fast, and what fasting in the right mode or mood and attitude and mind would be. So I read about how it's to deal your bread to the hungry, that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house. And when you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own kin. And it began to hit me very hard that I had understood this in principle in a way, 
And yet, I was among people right then explaining to them that a proper fast has to do not with our problems. And that's what he explains here in the first part of this chapter. He starts by saying, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. So he opens this prophecy that a dire warning is to be given, okay? And then he says, and this fits the church perfectly, they seek me daily, and as we read in, what was it, Jeremiah? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, I'm in the church, I'm okay, I'm a Philadelphian, I'm in the church. Everything is okay. So they seek me, they delight to know my ways, we keep the Sabbath, we keep the holy days, blah, blah, blah. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. Now bear in mind the scriptures we read about what true religion is today. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you don't pay any attention? So people in the church fast, but God does not answer. He pays no attention. You and I have prayed. We have fasted. We have had very scarce results. I will not say never, but not much result from God. So fasting sometimes has seemed like it didn't do much good. might change your attitude a little bit. But he said, why do you fast? You fast for your selfish reasons. Now, we know we should fast on atonement because God says to. But usually, when we decide to fast other than that, it's because we have our own tail in a crack. We have some problem ourselves, some need, some frustration, some illness, or our kinfolk do, or something that causes us to say, I need to fast, I need to draw closer to God to get an answer for my problems. That's what he's describing here in these few verses without going into it in detail. And then he says in verse 5, Is it such a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul, and to bow down his head as a bulrush, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the eternal? Is this something God's looking for? For you to say, woe is me. Remember how the Pharisees did it? They rent their clothes, they poured ashes over their heads, and they walked down the street saying, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. They wanted people to see that they were fasting. So are we to feel sorry for ourselves because we went a day without food, and we made such a great sacrifice before God so that that makes us a spiritual giant that we went without food for a day. Because of our own needs. Because of our selfish purposes. And then he explains that that is not what fasting is. Fasting is an outgoing concern for others if it's done the way God wants it done. It isn't for my needs. It's for someone else's needs. Let's see that. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? 
not just your burdens and mine, but those who are oppressed to be freed from whatever it is that they are under that is holding them down, and that you break every yoke off the oppressed neck. A yoke was like you put on an oxen to make it plow, to burden and to labor under. And that whatever people are in burden to and laboring under needs to be released. Now let's see that he's talking about someone other than ourselves. When he mentions the oppressed and the yoke being broken. Verse 7, Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry? And that you bring to the poor, or bring the poor that are cast out or oppressed to your house. When you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own kin. Or perhaps even deceive your own self. Fasting is to sacrifice, to help others. That is the purpose to deal your bread to the hungry, and that you bring the poor to your house. See why that hit me like a thunderbolt when I was sitting there talking to those people, and there were widows there and orphans there who barely have enough to subsist on, if they do, and all those little orphans who lost their parents that Evan and Braddocks and the others there are trying to bring out and to teach they have invited them to their house. They are sharing what they have, which is not much, with those little children trying to help them. They are, in a very simple, wonderful way, reaching out to the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the hungry, and the naked around them. They are fulfilling, by their works, what God is saying here. Or they are making fish ponds and growing cabbages to help feed the widow and the orphan. And to me, I almost cried. Especially when I was reading this to the people who are in need, who are trying to help those in greater need. And I, coming from this nation where we have everything we could possibly want, not just need, I felt like an imbecile. It was truly moving. And I felt, how can I not be helping these people? Now he says, if you will do this, do you want blessings from God? Do you want God's face turned to us? Yes, we all do. I've read many times in Jeremiah where it says, when you turn to me with your whole heart, I will turn to you. Now, let's throw into that mix this passage right here. Because we've already read how Christ said, the naked and the hungry, those who are in need, have to do with your salvation. They have to do with eternal death. They have to do with be ye warmed and filled and going to the lake of fire because we do not take care of people. And here he says that his blessing, as we'll read, is contingent upon us taking care of the impoverished, the hungry, the poor, the naked. 
He says, if you fast this way, and you give, and invite them to your home, and feed them, then shall you call, and the Eternal shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, here I am. So his turning to us and blessing us has a great deal to do with us having works and living faith in terms of what true religion and undefiled actually is. In other words, we might say, I'll give my heart to God. All right, big deal, says God. How is that evidenced toward the needy, the poor, the widow, and the orphan? Because that's how I'm going to judge you, is how you treat them. It's what he says here in so many words. It's what Christ said in Matthew 25, and so on. We've already read those. Uh, you take, if you take away from you the midst, the midst of you the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. I looked that up in other transgress, in, uh, transgressions, translations. And what it's saying here about those things, the yoke, the finger, and vanity, uh, is translated in others, banish all oppression, uh, and don't point the finger or scorn others, uh, and have slanderous speech. Get rid of open scorn and words of malice, or to stop false accusations and vicious rumors, and accusing and laying false charges. So we are to take care of the needy, and we are to get our tongues off of each other, and quit oppressing each other with negative things about one another. So we're to show the love to those in need, and we're to show the love of God in how we treat one another. Because Christ says, how you do that is exactly how I'll judge how you treat me. Verse 10, And if you draw out your soul to the hungry, your emotions, your feelings, your soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall your light rise out of obscurity, and your darkness be as the noon day. So God's blessings here in the end time, and Mark these words, this is an end-time prophecy, and we'll see that in a moment. God turning His face back to us is more than just an emotion we have toward God, but it shows, or shown by, our works. And He defines what those works are. And the Eternal shall guide you continually, and satisfy your soul in drought, and make fat your bones... And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. We are, a time, are in a time of spiritual famine. God has had His face turned from us. And one of the keys, the major keys to this changing is what a true fast is all about. Not selfish needs and wants, but to do good to others. Especially those in need. Now notice, verse 12, which is what I was getting to with them. And they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. 
So it is an end-time prophecy about the time when God will begin to rebuild His temple with the leadership He provides and the remnant who come. And they will rebuild the desolate cities of Judah and Jerusalem that had been that way for many generations. So this is a specific prophecy in Isaiah 58 that if we do our part in the right kind of religion and show love to those in need, that we will be the ones He chooses to restore these things and to build them up again. So the work that we see that needs to be done in the prophecies and in the New Testament is contingent upon us fasting with the needs of others in mind, and then going and doing something about it. Now, I understood this in theory, and I did not know quite how to apply it as an American in the church here, because most everyone was more or less taken care of. But when I saw those people and was reading to them these words, I felt like a derelict and that my religion was in vain and hypocritical because they are in great need and I've been doing nothing about it. Of course, I didn't know about it, but that's no excuse. Now I do know about it, so I have no excuse. And I want to be among those who raise up the past. Read on. The repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If we will do what he's talking about here, He says we will be the repairers of the breach. There is a breach between God and His church. He has turned His face from it. And those who will take care of the widow and the orphan and the needy and the hungry are the ones that He is going to use to repair the breach between God and His church. Wow. And restorer of paths to dwell in. Now, that can be both spiritual and physical. He says in the end time, the Elijah to come would restore all things. He's saying we can be a part of that work. Restoring both true doctrine, but also the places or paths physically to dwell in. To understand and to know where the promised land truly is, where Zion truly is, and to be allowed to go there and invite people to our house to come from all over the world to build the temple of God. And it says in Isaiah 45, when those treasures are made possible, they will come. And they'll say, God is with you, and we will bind ourselves to you with chains, because God is with you. That's what we're called to do. Let us not lose sight of that. And I showed them the next verse that it will be Sabbath keepers who do this. Not just anyone, but Sabbath keepers who do it. I invited each of those groups to come to Zion. I invited them to come and dwell with us and help us build the temple of God when the time is right. And it hit me hard 
But that's one of the things God tells us to do, is bring them to our house and to help them. In the meantime, perhaps it is not quite time for them to come here and others around the world who will come. But in the meantime, they are destitute and needy and afflicted. And I feel a very, very deep responsibility toward helping them. And now that I know what they have been through since Worldwide Church of God broke up, how they have remained faithful to the truth, and how they are struggling to survive, they are our kin. I have no doubt of that. <clears throat> they are very simple. They are very direct. They are very friendly. They are very warm. And even in their abject poverty, they sing songs to God with a sweetness and a sincerity that puts us to shame. When they sang, I had to sit and smile from ear to ear. It was so sweet and so lovely and so sincere. And they really get into it. They need to be here to show some staid, stuffy Americans how to show joy to God in song. It's, it was amazing, brethren. I am going to dedicate everything I can to helping feed those orphans and those people. And I told Evan that when it's time to come here, I feel certain that God will allow him to bring those orphans with him. I asked him if the grandparents and aunts and uncles would release them to him, and he says, you bet. Any day, they're being taught the Word of God. They're being fed, hopefully, by us. I had him write up what it would cost to feed them a normal Kenyan diet, not with processed or American foods or whatever, but just with their maize bread and whatever Kenyans eat, which is truly an atrocious diet. And it works out to feed those orphans, perhaps he was including the staff as well, I don't know, about $108 per school day for breakfast and lunch for 50-plus people. And he said he's going to keep the number at 50. I said, we can't save the world today. We can't save Kenya today. That'll be done by God in the millennium. But you here are trying to help where you can as much as you can, and you recognize your limits. Now, brethren, they have already been doing what God instructs us to here. They have invited those orphans to their home, and they are trying their best to feed them and don't have the wherewithal to do it. And God says, if you will do that, then He will bless you. Now, is it possible that God would want us to be a blessing to those people for already doing what God tells us to do. And thereby also fulfill this scripture by doing what we can to help our brethren. Because they are indeed converted, true children of God. I have no doubt of that after having been there. So I have pledged in my mind to put all the assets from the church that I possibly can 
because there are 22 or 23 school days in a month, and at $108, it works out somewhere around, by the time you lose money in the exchange, sending money over there, it'll take about probably $2,400 a month to feed the orphans and staff and to take care of just that one need. They also have at least 10 congregations scattered for hundreds of miles and down into Tanzania. We went there to see a group, and they have no means other than walking to try to go 30, 40, 50, 100 miles, 200 miles to visit the churches. So I have told them I'll also buy a motorbike <clears throat> for them to be able to visit the churches. And that'll come out of church funds, be about 1500 or so uh, American dollars to buy a new Yamaha 125. Um, people over there walk for the most part, or uh, some few have motorbikes, and cars are fairly rare for individuals. Or they can ride a Matatu, which is kind of a, a large van that they crowd 12, 15, 20 people into, like college students in a Volkswagen, you remember from the 70s. And uh, they can get around that way, but it takes money even to ride a Matatu. So Evan and uh, Braddock can ride a motorbike from church to church, and I intend to provide that. And I also plan, since we're really in Isaiah 58, uh, in the next day or two or three, uh, to fast with these very things in mind, uh, with this attitude in mind, so that we might help these people. So I invite you, if you wish, to pick a day in the next two or three that we might do this together. Maybe everyone can't the same day, but... Uh, sometime between Sunday and Tuesday, I plan to do this myself, maybe get away for a day or two or three and and uh, think about these things and be sure that my mind and emotions are lined up right. But if you wish to be involved in that, uh, you're welcome. And notice that it says, you don't give your extra bread, we've made this point before, but your bread, that which is yours. Not your tithes, not offerings you might normally give, but your own bread. That which, after everything else is done, is yours. Being willing to share that with the widow, the orphan, the needy, the poor, the stranger. We've seen many scriptures to that effect today. And is it a sacrifice? Yes. Can you pledge so much out of what you make per month? to take care of the widow and the orphan and the needy, of your own bread. That which, I don't mean you have to go hungry, that's not what I'm saying, but of your own money, of your own things that you would normally spend for yourself, are you willing to give part of that to take care of those in need? And God makes that a great part of our eternal judgment. We've seen the scriptures on that. That to him, from Genesis to Revelation, taking care of those in need reflects the mind of God, the way of God, and the way he would have us to think. Now, these people also have chosen to go with us as their organization in the church. They've been through several. Uh, they more recently have been somewhat with Bill Goff from New Jersey. But 
They understand the Passover. They understand the calendar better than Jim Russell ever did now. And they also understand the end-time message of hope for the church, which they can get, as far as I know, nowhere else. So they've chosen to go with us. They have already told me that I must come back for the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know that that will happen, but uh, the invitation is there, and they wish it, and they think they'll probably have 400 for the feast this year. Uh, so they have needs. Uh, extending the 20 by 40 building to get another 100 in would be something that would help. Uh, and they have widows and orphans throughout the congregations, not just these orphan children that need fed. So I just feel, based on this specific prophecy and the other scriptures we've read, that it is incumbent upon us as God's people to show living faith by our works. A, a specific need that has come to our attention. So, whatever you might be able in your mind to pledge and to mark as such uh, to help these people out, uh, I will augment as much as I possibly can from the church budget. It's not that we're, we're not in trouble. Uh, some might suggest that. We're not. Uh, we have enough to survive on coming into the church. But there's not a lot of extra, and I'm going to designate as much as I possibly can, uh, cutting corners wherever we can, and going without some things where we can, to be sure that Isaiah 58 is fulfilled, and that God will then hear when we call, and answer us. Because... The end-time work is dependent on that kind of outgoing concern for other people. So I think I understand Isaiah 58 is a specific prophecy far better than ever I did before, and I hope it opens your eyes as well to see that we need to invite them here ultimately, but in the meantime, take care of them the best we can until God sees fit to bring them to us. And Him blessing us and shining His face upon us has a great deal to do with how we respond to the needy. So I think that's enough said. I felt it was a very profitable trip on a spiritual level. And I hope that we can do our part to help those people as they are trying to help others and thereby receive the blessing of God because of our true religion and undefiled.